0: Starting from Acts 19, beginning in verse 1, Acts 19, 1. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in in all about twelve men and I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word, and especially just for this time that we can gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus. With the expectation, God, of hearing from you, and of you ministering to us, and we know that it is um, a reasonable expectation, because it is your desire, God, to to minister to us through your word. And so we thank you for that, we yield ourselves to you in faith, God, and ask that, that you would would speak to us and teach us and direct us, God, as you would be pleased. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, um, we're probably all a little disappointed about the events over the past week. Not that they're all settled yet, but God knows. And... um, I am th- so thankful um, to be able to come to God's Word as we've been looking at and know the perseverance and encouragement that God gives through the Scriptures. This is a portion of Scripture that, that again, um, um, like everything we've been looking at in Acts and all through God's Word, always applicable, always um, um, lessons that we can draw to our own personal lives and the things that are going on in the world that we live in. And it, and it just occurs to me with, with this particular portion of Scripture, all of chapter 19 of Acts, where Paul is, is in Ephesus. Really, everything in Acts 19 is Paul is in Ephesus, and, and he's on his third missionary journey. And, um, and it, there, there's a lot of details here that we'll, we'll, we'll dive down into some of them and look at, at some of the things here, but the big bird's eye view is very, very important in this chapter. And I think, and I didn't get this in any commentary, so maybe I'm wrong, but it occurs to me that beginning with Apollos in chapter 18, where we are told, just by way of reminder, if you go back to 18 and it says in, in verse 25, this man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So the man wasn't wrong in what he was preaching. But it wasn't the whole story. He was accurately teaching about the coming Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. So then Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside into their home, presumably. And it says in verse 26, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So he wasn't inaccurate. He was accurately teaching concerning the things speaking about Jesus, but he didn't know about Jesus. He knew what the Old Testament scriptures said about the Messiah, so he was teaching accurately. Now, he's he's being instructed on a more accurate understanding. Now, the thing that that I want to highlight with that is this very gifted, very competent man who is a, is his reputation is growing rapidly for his ability to handle Scripture, is taken aside by two lay people. And he is instructed in the truth, and he willingly and humbly, humbly receives the truth. Now in chapter 19, we see a very similar thing. And this is kind of the bird's eye view here. When we have these disciples of Apollos who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. All they've heard is what Apollos told them. And we know Apollos was deficient in his understanding. And so they need more understanding. They need to to understand more accurately the things concerning the truth. And so they hear the truth, and they embrace it. They didn't say, well, this is not what Apollos said. They said, really? Really? This is what it says. This is what it's all about. And because there were people who had, were, were oriented toward the truth, they readily received more truth when they heard it. Now, as you go through Acts, the last portion of the book, the last half, I'm sorry, of the chapter, is about what's going on in Ephesus in the secular world. And it's not good. I mean, these, these people of Ephesus have believed what has got to be one of the biggest lies for human beings ever to have believed. And so the book starts with people who have accepted truth and how they are responding when they hear truth. They're gracious, they're humble, they take it to heart. And then it turns to the secular world where people on a massive scale, the whole city of Ephesus and really all of Asia Minor have accepted a lie. And so when they're confronted with the truth... Completely different response. And so at the second half of this chapter, you've got this guy named Demetrius, who's a silversmith, who's made a fortune off of making idols. And he stands up and he says, this guy, Paul, says we're wrong. And he creates a riot. And so again, and so I think the big bird's eye view here is about the truth and how people respond to truth. That's what I think is going on here. So now let's dig down into the details a little bit. So chapter 19. And it came about that while Paulus was at Corinth, and so Apollos was, was, had gone off to Corinth from Ephesus, and here comes Paul. He's coming to Ephesus now, and he and engages some, with these people who Apollos has been ministering to. And we don't know how this conversation developed, but something was, was not right And Paul sensed that. And so he just gets right to the heart of the issue. He's been talking to these guys. And he he finally just says, folks, I just need to ask you a question. Do you guys have the Holy Spirit? And they're going, who's the Holy Spirit? We don't know what you're talking about. And Paul goes, well, that's not right. And so there's a big assumption here on Paul's part. And that is that a person who has been born again a person who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, that that person receives immediately the Holy Spirit. And so when they had not even heard of the Holy Spirit, Paul knows they haven't received him. So the assumption here is that when a person places his faith in Christ and is born again by the Spirit of God and receives the Holy Spirit, He knows it. He knows that. Now, you may not be able to articulate that. And here I'm kind of thinking about my own experience in receiving Christ as a 10-year-old boy. Nobody had told me that when I received Christ that I would be receiving the Holy Spirit. Nobody told me that. But I knew I now belonged to Him. Something happened in me where there was no doubt in my mind that I now belong to Jesus, and I have a personal relationship with Him. So if somebody had come along and said, have you received the Holy Spirit? You know, I think, as even as a 10-year-old, I would have gone, you know, I, I, that sounds right. I don't understand what all that means, but something has happened here. I am not what I was. And so Paul is really just cutting to the chase here. Because he's going to say over in Romans 8:9 that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so this is essential. Even in the book of the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter one, Paul says that in him, you also, the Ephesians, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying this was your experience as he's writing to them years later. You heard the message, you received the message, you believed what you heard, and you received the Holy Spirit. That is what happens when a person places his faith in Christ. Now the difficulty here is Acts is a transitional book. And so that kind of just throws everything catawampus. It's 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 a hard, there are hard things here to because to, in it these people who had not yet received the Holy Spirit had believed everything they had been told concerning the Messiah. So they were, in effect, Old Testament believers. Now what I mean by that is Old Testament believers, like Abraham, for example, had accepted all the revelation that had been given concerning the coming Messiah. And Scripture tells us that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith in what God had promised. So Abraham was an Old Testament believer. He was saved. He was declared righteous just as we are declared righteous. So the New Testament never says Abraham was saved. That's New Testament. I so the Old Testament never says that. That's New Testament language. But the Bible does say he was declared righteous as we are declared righteous. So if we are saved, then I'm saying Abraham was saved. If we're declared righteous in the same way that Abraham was declared righteous, there's no distinction between us. Jesus said concerning his own disciples... Do not rejoice at all these things that are happening through you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That was before the Holy Spirit had been given to them, as we're seeing here in Acts. But their names are written in heaven, meaning they're saved. Jesus said in John 14 to his disciples, If I go away to prepare a place for you, guess what? I will come again for you. And again, those disciples had not yet received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Jesus is coming for them to take them to heaven. So it seems that you can make a strong case that Old Testament believers, and that goes all the way up to the time of Pentecost, were people who were saved. So these people here, they had believed in an Old Testament sense but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. It would seem that that was perhaps also true for Apollos. Now we're not told that that, he, that, that, that happened as a result of the conversation he had with Aquila and Priscilla, but if Apollos' disciples had not yet received the Holy Spirit, I think it stands to reason that neither had Apollos. Apollos was an Old Testament preacher, in terms of his message. He had not yet realized that Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, has come, has fulfilled the scriptures, has died for our sins, has risen again from the dead. Apollos didn't know that. He was preaching of what was to happen when it had already happened. And so I don't think there was really any difference between Apollos and his disciples. And so, the, and so now that the God is is bringing these people into the fullness of what it means to be saved, and that is that we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. That's a lot, and I don't, I don't pretend to, to, to know all the answers to this, because one of the things that comes up is, well, what was the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to believers? I don't know. That's the hardest thing for a preacher to say, okay? So you're going to, wow, I don't know. Okay, And there's a lot of thoughts on it and everything of what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament and what his role was with the Old Testament believer. But when it comes down to it, it is really, really hard to make a fine distinction between Old Testament and New Testament, even though the Bible is making a distinction in terms of the Holy Spirit. One distinction we do see is in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is not prompting those believers to call God Father. And in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is living in us, bearing witness, crying out, Abba, Father. And so it was the most natural thing in the world for a Christian today to make reference to God as his Father. Old Testament never happened. So that's one distinction. Beyond that, it's really hard to say what the clear distinctions were. But here again, another problem. We don't, we don't fully understand what's going on here, but, we, but let's, I'll get into it. It says, verse 5, And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had been baptized into John's baptism, which was preparatory. That John was preaching, the Messiah is coming. And so they repented in preparation for His coming. But they had now they're being baptized in the name of Jesus. And then verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So you should already know by by this chapter 19 in Acts that it has not been necessary for Paul or anyone else to lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, that generally that has not happened. Okay? So when the initial believers, the, those 120 in the upper room, received the Holy Spirit, no one laid hands on them. When Cornelius received the Holy Spirit and all of his household, nobody laid hands on them. And so this was immediate upon their believing, the Holy Spirit came upon them. We know that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke in tongues. When the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius, he spoke in tongues. And now this is the third time that people are speaking in tongues. But every other time when people are getting saved, they're not speaking in tongues. Okay? Apollos didn't speak in tongues. The Philippian jailer didn't speak in tongues. The Bereans didn't speak in tongues. And you can go right through, and there's no indication of any other time in Acts where new believers spoke in tongues except these three occasions. So why? I don't know. That's twice in one sermon. Can you believe that? No. We have some ideas with this. When you look at the three occasions where believers were spoke in tongues, on all three occasions, the audience was Jewish. I think that's probably significant. So in Acts chapter 2, those 12, um, um, uh, the, the apostles and all the others that were with them, they were Jewish people. All 120 people were Jews, and who were they speaking in tongues to? The Jews and proselytes who were at the temple, and so that all the nations were represented there. And they and there were Jewish people in the temple, and they were hearing them speak in their own languages. The second time is with Cornelius, and so Cornelius is speaking in tongues. He's not. Jew. He's a Gentile, but the audience was Jewish. Because Peter was there with several Jewish people that he had brought along. Why was that significant? Because it seems that God wanted the the Jews to understand that the Gentiles getting saved is not a separate work. God is not forming two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. It is one body of Christ, one work of God. So it's very important that when, when those... Gentiles got saved, that the Jews could see. See, Jews look for signs. Gentiles search for wisdom. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 says, that when the Jews saw this sign of tongues, they took this to be the sign is God is doing the same work. It's not two different works. And then now Paul's ministry, and once again the 12 people who spoke in tongues, seemed to all be Jews. This was once again a Jewish audience. And so the the thought is that the Jews at this time in Ephesus and in Europe needed confirmation of the message that Paul was preaching was not a different message. And that again, it is one work. So the purpose the first time was to validate for the Jews the fulfillment of Joel 2. The purpose for the second occasion when Cornelius spoke in tongues to validate for the Jews God's acceptance of Gentiles. And now the purpose this time is to validate for the Jews Paul's message. So one thing is clear. All three occasions, Jews are the audience. Now, in the interest of time, I won't do a lot here of explanation about tongues. Um, but, we, but Paul spent a fair amount of time talking about tongues in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 deal with spiritual gifts. To summarize, Paul was very, very clear that it is the Spirit that determines who gets which gift, not man. One thing we see in Acts is that no one is praying to speak in tongues. Of the three times people speak in tongues, nobody is praying for it. It happens without anybody praying about it. And when you come to 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it is the Spirit that determines who gets which gift. And then, to be very clear, Paul says, and something's wrong if everybody has the same gift. He says, God didn't do it. Because God is not going to give one church that every member in that church would have the same gift. He says that would be like every person being a foot or every person being an eye. That's not going to happen. God disperses the gifts. He distributes the gifts so that there's a good representation of the gifts within any given body. Now, some gifts may be more represented than than another in a particular church, from church to church, but no church is going to have 100% of the people with the same gift because it's no longer functioning as a body, if that were the case. We also know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that when a person speaks in tongues, no one understands, he doesn't even understand himself what he's saying. Well, that's different than Acts. In Acts, the speaker knew exactly what he was saying, and those hearing him knew exactly what he was saying. He was speaking in known earthly languages. And there was not a need for an interpreter because they were speaking known languages. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says there is a need for an interpreter because no one understands, not even the one who speaks understands he is speaking mysteries in his own heart. He doesn't understand. For this reason, Paul says that he would rather speak five words with his mind rather than 10,000 words with a tongue. And then Paul will lay it out and he'll say, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But you can restrict it. It's not valid to forbid it. No person would have the right to say to another Christian, you may not speak in tongues. You do not have the right to speak in tongues. That would be forbidding tongues. But Paul also says it should be restricted. And so he gives some restrictions for that in 1 Corinthians 14. He'll say one at a time, always with an interpreter, no more than two or three in any given church service. So those are strong restrictions. And if those things are not going to be practiced, the clear implication is, then tongues should not be practiced. The restrictions need to be adhered to. And those are, I I believe, Paul's saying they're non-negotiables. So it's a valid gift. It's something that's still true today. But there are restrictions on it, as there are with all the gifts. And those restrictions are not to be ignored, no matter how important we may think a particular gift is. So, all of this to validate that these people are genuinely saved and that they have humbly received the truth. And then it says, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, but when some were becoming becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them. And he took away the disciples, reasoning daily, in the school of Tyrannius. Now, Tyrannius was was a, um, a Greek teacher, and his school there in Ephesus had classes in the morning and classes in the evening, just like a good torchbearer Bible school. And, but in the afternoon, there were no classes. It was the heat of the day. People took a, took a long lunch. They took a siesta. And so then you'd come back for classes in the evening. So the school was empty in the afternoon. And Paul was given permission to use that facility to have his own Bible school. So we have the first Bible school here in the New Testament, where Paul is, 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 is meeting regularly for several years, and he is discipling and teaching, and as a consequence, verse 10, it says, And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So a tremendous ministry goes out from Ephesus. And so Ephesus becomes a sending church. People are hearing, accepting the truth, and they're going out. And then God is also performing some amazing miracles during this time. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That's a very important verse in every word and how God inspired um, Luke to write that. Who's performing the miracles? God. God is performing the miracles, not Paul. So the, the focus is not on the man, but the focus is on God. What kind of miracles? Extraordinary miracles. I think I said last week, every miracle is miraculous. Every miracle is supernatural, but not every miracle is extraordinary. Not all of them are sensational. Some are not very sensational. And yet, they are still miraculous. These happen to be very sensational miracles. And he explains, so that handkerchiefs and aprons or even... Uh, were carried, were were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. And that's amazing. Peter had a similar experience. There was a time in Peter's life where he could just walk down the street, and wherever his shadow fell on people, those people got healed. And so you can imagine, you know, I mean, I start take, walking at night. I guess, you know, I mean, it's just all the crowds that would. And so every time Peter, people were dragging their, the the sick people around so they could just be in, in Peter's shadow that didn't happen peter's whole life that was a brief time that god did that this didn't happen all of paul's life and it didn't happen for anyone else so the lesson here it's not normative yes god could do this today if he wanted to do this but it isn't normative it was exceptional it was extraordinary even for peter and for paul i saw a youtube video of a church where um, the the preacher was being um, um, lauded as having a great anointing on him. And and if you wanted to catch that anointing, all you needed to do was take your coat off and put it on the platform. And And so the whole front of the platform was piled. It looked like almost two feet deep with people's jackets all over the platform because they wanted to catch the anointing, and then they could put on their jacket, and what was on that preacher would now be on them. So they're trying to make normative something that we are told was extraordinary. It was exceptional. That word is very important. It doesn't always happen this way, is what we're being told. These were extraordinary times, extraordinary miracles. It doesn't usually happen this way. So don't try to make it normative. Verse 13, we see another aspect of, of how we can how we can um, relate to truth. In the first half of the chapter, it's truth, man, I'm accepting it. And there, and no reservation, humbly accepting it, being corrected, responding to it, being impacted by it. Last half of the chapter, all lies. But now, mixture of truth and lie. Verse 13. And, but also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted, and you can get a Jewish exorcist, itinerant. What's your ministry? Casting out demons. And so, you know, we're, you know, and where you been this week? Oh, I went to so-and-so. Why? Casting out demons. Next week, I'm going somewhere else. Casting out demons. Who wants that kind of ministry? But these were Jewish itinerant exorcists. That was their job. And apparently, they were, they were in, this, in the case of these men, seven Sons, I think it is, yeah, seven sons of one man named Siva, and they were in the business of casting out demons, just going from place to place. Now it says in verse 13, they were attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. To name over, see, this is very, very well known and embraced throughout Old Testament and New Testament times is people understood that name implied authority. It, 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 and the name represented the character and the authority of the person. And demons respond to authority. And so when they saw Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they go, That works. They saw it work. And they go, If it works for Paul, it can work for us. And it did. They had some success, unbelieving Jewish exorcists who have accepted the truth that Jesus' name is a greater, higher, more powerful name than anything else they'd ever come across. That's the truth. But they had not received the truth for themselves. They had not received Christ. Though they understood that the name of Christ is greater than any other name, they had ever come across when it comes to casting out demons. But they, and so this, you see the mixture of truth. On the one hand, lie. They They are not personally in relationship with Jesus. On the other hand, truth. These unbelievers recognizing that the name of Jesus is greater than any other name. Philippians 2 tells us that. God has given him the name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he has the greatest name that has ever been given to anyone. These guys believe that. But they have not placed their faith in Christ. Verse 14, And seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Man, I, I, I think I, I, that's a... That's, that's a wake-up call, right? you got a demon co- talking to you, and he goes, and these are two different words for know here. I know Jesus experientially, personally. I have personal knowledge of who Jesus is, this demon is saying. And Paul, I've heard about him. The, Greek word, the first Greek word is gnesko, is, um, um, and the second is epistemai. When we get the English word epistemology, I have knowledge of. So he says, I have personal knowledge of Jesus, experiential knowledge of Jesus. And I have a real good idea who Paul is. Got no idea who you guys are. Whoa. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued both of them and overpowered them. Now, both of them in the Greek can mean more than two. It, it can mean as many as you want. And so it could have been all seven of them. And so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, I would think. And, and the name of Jesus was being magnified. And that's the point. The name of Jesus is being magnified. But there's a mixture of truth here. Now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't hit the application that should just be very much staring in our faces here. You can know the truth about Jesus. And you can even acknowledge that Jesus is greater than any other person you have ever heard of. And you can be benefiting even from that. You can even be in the ministry, as it were, on the basis of what you know to be true about Jesus, and yet not have a personal relationship with him. You're using the benefits of Christianity, as it were. You're using the benefits of being part of what God is doing. But you have no right to use the name. See, as a Christian, we're identified with this name. We are one with Christ. And what is true of Him is true of us. And so we have every right to use His name, because of the identity that Christ gives us with Himself, making us one with Him. But if you are not one who has placed His faith in Christ for salvation, for the gift of eternal life, then you may be benefiting from being around Christians. And you may even, you know, I don't know, have various kinds of ministry. But if you do not have a personal relationship with him, it is a mixture of truth and error. And God wants it to be all truth. That the name of Jesus would clearly be magnified. Now, I'm not going to go in and read every verse of this last part here. I'll highlight a couple things. If you look at verse um, 24... A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, who is also Diana, this goddess, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. It's about money, not about the truth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Is that the truth? Absolutely. So you have another, again, another people who know the truth, but aren't saved. And he says, and not only this, there is danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. You know what the, god, the goddess of Artemis was, who she was? She was a rock that fell out of the sky. It was a meteorite. Because he says, he's going to say that this thing, this, it came down from heaven. He was describing a meteorite. And they, this meteorite hit somewhere in Ephesus or near Ephesus, and these people came up with the idea: this is a god, a goddess, and they worshipped her, and they made a temple to her, and they had a thousand temple prostitutes around to um, there at the temple. Huge business, and that was what it's all about: the money and the business. It was a lie, a lie, a rock that falls out of heaven. Is a God? Really? I mean, who couldn't see through that? But they will, willingly embrace the lie, knowing the truth. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. Speaking of the small idols that they would make. And so he creates a riot. And it says that for two hours nonstop verse 34 they shouted great is artemis of the ephesians for 2 hours great is artemis of the ephesians and finally the city clerk the town clerk got them all quieted down and he says in verse 35 men of ephesus what man is there after all who does not know that the city of ephesus is guardian of the temple of the great artemis of the image which fell down from heaven you see It's a meteorite. Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. And he goes on to say, we're in danger of being accused of having a riot, and then punishment is going to come upon us. So what are we to get from this? I think there's more going on here than the propensity of pagans to believe such blatant lies. The, the, the bigger thing here is not about idolatry, and it's not about the money. It's about the contrast here, which we are living in these days today. This is why, no matter if, if Biden were to win by 370 electoral votes or whatever it is, you know, twice what it would take. He could get 500, get all of them, 100%. And it could be all by theft. By corruption. The church is not going to be on the streets rioting. It's never going to happen. And they know that. They know that. We're not going to riot because we're people of the truth. And though we hate the lie and we hate the corruption and it makes us sick to our stomachs when it happens and we pray against it, and we want just, I mean, how many people does it take to do extraordinary miracles and see the world impacted? One or two. Paul, Peter, just a couple of guys, and you see the major impact that they're making all over modern-day Europe. And I think, God, we are the one or two today? I'd like to think I could be one of those one or two. Apparently, I'm not. And I don't know why. We don't know why God's not doing That kind of thing, these extraordinary miracles, why are they they extraordinary and not normative? It's his business. We just know they're not normative. It is extraordinary. But the bigger thing here is people of truth hear the truth, respond to the truth, and that's the end of the story. And when you're believing a lie, you're not going to hear the truth. And all Paul is doing is just one Little, dumpy Jewish man running around saying, Jesus is the only God. Jesus is fully God. It's all about Jesus, and he has been raised from the dead. He was turning the world upside down. You see the contrast? And people were so mad at this simple truth, they would riot over it because it's affecting their pocketbooks. Money is what's driving them. We shouldn't be surprised when we see the same thing today. That people will riot over a lie and stay calm when they're on the losing end of that riot. How does that happen? I think it's because of the Spirit of God. This same Holy Spirit lives in us to keep us calm. We receive the truth. And the Holy Spirit keeps us. We walk with him. We walk in Christ. I never saw Jesus panicking. Never saw Jesus wringing his hands over the corruption of the Roman Empire, of Herod himself, one of the most corrupt people ever. Pilate, second only to perhaps to Herod. Corrupt men. Jesus is calm. He is the truth. Walking in the truth speaking the truth some people respond other people's riot other people rioted same thing here in acts 19 same thing going on today a couple of lessons just to wrap things up the name of jesus is and always will be above every other name we have no right to use it magically but we have every right to stand on the name of Jesus. Great authority has been given to us in the name of Jesus. God is all-powerful, and God does extraordinary things, and He uses people. And He only needs one or two to accomplish amazing things. I wonder... I know they do. I know the answer to this. Do the demons know about us? Those demon, That demon said, I know who Jesus is. I've heard about Paul. Who are you? See, if you're in Christ, the demons know exactly who you are. That's comforting as well as disturbing, <laughs> right? But they know who we are just like they knew who Paul was. Others were magnifying the name of Jesus because of what they saw happening through Paul and those with him. Isn't that what we desire more than anything else? Is that others would magnify the name of Jesus. When these people were coming to faith in Christ, I skipped over the part, but it said they took all their books of magic and they burned them. They were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. I've heard it said that that was a year's wage for 150 men. That was a lot of money. The reason they publicly, they says they spoke of what was in the books, it seems to be what's being described, and then they burned them. The reason for speaking of them is because they wanted to, see, Satan, Satan's power is only in darkness. And so they wanted to expose the lies of the enemy, so that they would no longer have any power. Satan's power is only in darkness. So they exposed it. And then they said, now that has been exposed, we're going to throw it away. We're going to burn it. There are some things that you may have in your possession that should never be sold. Never given away. They should be burned. Some things don't belong in anyone's possession. Handkerchiefs, aprons, shadows being cast on others, they are not normative. But I can tell you what is normative. Walking in victory over Satan. Because God, Christ, has defeated the evil one. There is still much evil in this world, we understand it. But in our own personal lives, there is no reason to be defeated. No reason for sin, Satan, or the world to defeat us to conquer us, because the devil, the world, and sin have been defeated in Jesus Christ. And because of Christ and His shed blood, each of us can walk in victory every day, no matter what's happening around us. We have the Holy Spirit, and that should be something that we don't take for granted and live in the reality of His indwelling presence. We live in a demon filled world where lies and untruth seem to go without any check, where governments remain corrupt. But in the midst of this, Jesus is delivering people from their sin and from hell. Jesus is saving. God is alive even in this corrupt, demon-filled world. And he is doing much. I think we're, I know, we will all one day be in heaven and, and we will have our eyes open to how much God was doing even when we are most discouraged about what was happening in the world. We serve a living God. I pray that we would all our days be people of truth and not those who scream and are tempted to riot over a lie. Because we've embraced the truth, we can have all of our possessions taken away. We can have our livelihoods taken away. We can have our life taken away. And we still walk humbly because our life is Christ. It's not our possessions. It's not our livelihood. It's not even our physical life. Our life is Jesus, and no one can take that from us. I'll pray.